Shut up and drive. Welcome, Dave. Welcome to the sophomore season of Shut Up and Drive. Well, thanks very much, Kevin. It's good to be here. This is obviously episode two. Uh, obvious to us because we're recording it. Maybe not obvious to the uh, listeners themselves, but uh, to our global audience, uh, we're happy to have you with us. <laughs> good. Well, what, what do we want to talk about first? So maybe some industry... Uh Hot news or what happened the last couple of weeks here? Well, yeah, and, and this, frankly, isn't so much uh, going granular. FCA and PSA have announced a merger, and uh, that's been covered by most business media. In other words, they don't need to have an automotive section to have noticed that uh, FCA, which is largely American product sold in this country, and PSA, which has its concentration in Europe, specifically France, uh, are merging with the idea of doing what most OEMs do when they merge, cost savings and development, mm. and having a broader reach with respect to uh, their market. Be very, very interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah. And plus, I mean, I wonder if they'll drop product lines or, you know, what we've seen before, how they'll rationalize all that. I mean, it's two European makes coming together. That's right. I, I think of Peugeot not widespread globally from the decrease other than absorbing Opel recently, but... Yeah, and when we think of Peugeot, my, my go-to is the first 10-speed bike I owned back in 1972. <laughs> so uh, they obviously have not been a constant presence here in the U.S. When they were here, it was with some attractive product, some, I would argue, compelling product. Yeah, yeah, I learned to drive on Peugeot yeah, 505s, exactly. a 505 STI. Right, right. So that's good stuff. Uh, at Cars and Coffee here in the uh, northern Virginia area, there's a guy with a 405 that, oh, yeah, that yeah. resonates. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, what they do going forward, I don't think anyone knows. Possibly they don't even know at this mm. point. But if uh, there's an episode three of Shut Up and Drive, we should uh, perhaps talk about it. Sounds good. Um, wanted to also talk first, a uh, kind of continuation of something we brought up in the first podcast about um, – the use of non-traditional auto shows and with all of that going on, SEMA was held in the last few weeks. And, and yeah. SEMA is perhaps the prototype of the yeah. non-traditional yeah. auto shows. It has historically been industry only. Uh, the good news is for the Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association that hosts it and promotes it, there are a heck of a lot of independent shops that independent aftermarket companies and aftermarket installers that have a real interest in what uh, the SEMA show held annually in Las Vegas does. I'm a big fan. I've only attended, I think, twice, mm -hmm. and it's uh, a heck of a lot of uh, square footage to cover. But what it represents in terms of the American automotive industry, what it can do when they get slightly out of the box and want to become automotive again, as opposed to a bottom line account accountant-driven business model. It's fun to see and uh, kind of gives you hope that uh, there are still auto people in charge at automotive companies. Well, I like that. It, it's really about the small businesses. I mean, public can't even go. Right. That's the one right. thing. I mean, we're saying it's an example of alternative shows, but it's not a public show. Yeah. You have to be a business or Correct. something. So that's my only hangout. I wish there was a way the public that are make up the enthusiast community that there was a way they could be there a little more directly well, than just the businesses that are making these great products and components and things like that. And, so. and I get your point. I, I think what maybe the existing auto show structures could remember in taking a look at SEMA 
is that it's built from enthusiasm. Sure, people are there to make money. Yeah. But for the most part, that money is driven by their appreciation and affection toward the automobile and trucks. Yeah. Uh, most auto shows, if they give that aspect of the industry any attention at all, it's the Mustang Club bringing six of their cars. And nothing wrong with Mustangs or their clubs. But it's just kind of that passing nod, which they do each and every year. Uh, at an auto show, you give them the corner that you can't lease to GM. So you give it to the Mustang Club for them to bring half a dozen Mustangs. SEMA is up and down. It's Asian. It's European. Obviously, it's born specifically of enthusiasm for domestic cars, but it really touches everybody. And to my way of thinking, if you want to touch the consumer where they live and breathe, you bring more of that enthusiasm into the traditional automotive. Yeah, I mean, one of the highlights for me this year from SEMA was the, the Honda, what they showed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't there, but when I read about it. Well, I was going to say, most of what and we're speaking of is hearsay. Correct. <laughs> well, I, mean, I cut my teeth working for Honda, so okay. I have a little piece of my heart. is is a Honda piece for sure. Fair enough. And um, you know, they brought their. They've been in the market for sixty years. Uh, some you know, Fast and the Furious was inspired by the whole you know Japanese domestic market kind of modification and racing racer boy racer type right. product in Southern California. So they showed some of their original Civic Si stuff there, and. Um, they even took their enthusiasm from that side and racer side and put it onto their more recent SUVs. Not so much off-roady, but more like off-road uh, Baja race type racing stuff onto the SUVs. Not just the rugged off-road components that a lot of the trucks do. So it was, it was kind of neat to see that. And so that I know the, those guys working on that in Ohio, so it's really cool. Is that the Passport and the Ridgeline? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's those very concepts, cool. Yeah. And also just to see Honda, and this isn't in... 2019 that they're doing this but for a while they were away from that performance imagery oh yeah yeah they, they essentially invented it they, and then they walked away they from drifted it. away yeah i like that yeah mm -hmm. and, and they did and i was very disappointed when they did because the, the honda showroom back in that day was distinct from nissan and toyota in large part because honda did have that street cred yeah. that permeated a lot of their model line yep. nissan had the z's Toyota had the Supras, but those were just one product in a multiple model lineup. With Honda, it seemed to be in in everything or yep. touching everything. Definitely. So cool Great. to see. Yeah. Was there anything else? I uh, yeah. I continue to get a big kick out of the, the resto mod or the reinvention of older platforms. Yeah. GM brought a Chevy C10 right. that was powered by two electric motors. And while I'm not a big fan, per se, of that marriage, uh, it came across very, very well. And it also speaks to, no, to the notion which my son-in-law has alluded to. Rather than buying these crate motors that obviously make for very complex installations in an older vehicle, you get a couple of electric motors, and it is pretty much plug-and-play. Now, oh. obviously, there's going to be more going into that <laughs> than plug-and-play. But still, relative to the traditional motor swap, it uh, looks to be pretty damn easy, and it looks to be a business model that more OEMs might very well duplicate. Oh. So that looked cool. Okay. Uh, along the same lines, but more traditionally powered, uh, Mopar had this old early 60s oh, they, Dodge pickup. They have that heritage yeah. too. Yeah, yeah exactly. They and always have great concepts. Right, Mopar. right. And, and that was intriguing. Beyond that, I'm thinking uh, Supras were 
pretty much everywhere. Well, because Supra is being reintroduced. So right, right. Certainly and to their credit, most of the stylistic stuff that you add to a production car, in a lot of instances, it doesn't work particularly well. From what I could see of, of those photographs of Supras at SEMA, nice alliteration, is the fact that most of the stuff did work. So it was kind of nice to see the aftermarket not screwing it up mm. with regard to a production body shop. And that's what I know, like, Volkswagen uh, presents stuff on their recent SUVs interest, be it the Atlas or uh, Tiguan. And, um, but they always make sure what they're showing is actually usually a good portion of it. It will be available mm -hmm. as, mm -hmm. as components, aftermarket stuff that right. people can get. So that always makes it much better. Again, so the public can benefit from all this innovation and creativity going on. That's right. And, and I, I speaking of VW, I do wish that Volkswagen would bring more of what they've got in Europe in terms of not maybe the off-road ability, but the all-season ability of their Tiguan. Oh, bring it yeah. here to the States. Yeah. Because it's really attractive stuff. They have a lot more they can bring to the States. Right, but, right. You know, yeah. We'll see how that carries forth. They just announced, should have mentioned in industry news, their expansion of the factory in Chattanooga again for a third round of investment for electric vehicle production. Right, right. Yeah. So, Pretty exciting maybe, stuff. Yeah. And Kevin, I wouldn't want to leave the SEMA topic without touching on a couple of uh, imports that I find pretty intriguing. Hyundai is doing a nice job with Veloster. And they took, without my telling them, they took an idea that I thought was pretty attractive, which is to say make kind of a gravel grinder out of that Veloster platform. Oh, We're not yeah, talking boulder hopping. Mm -hmm. We're talking about just going down a gravel road in the same way that a gravel bike would go down that gravel road. Uh, slightly more ground clearance, truly aggressive rubber and one assumes some underpan protection for the mechanicals, yeah. along with a neat roof rack and should you want to camp and can talk someone into camping with you, uh, a tent that attaches to the vehicle. Uh, also, uh, Nissan, despite having a frontier that's at the end of its product cycle, decided to do something with it other than just build them and sell them. They uh, brought a V8-equipped frontier with a lift, with the big tires, and uh, it tells you what they could do in creating a compact or mid-sized Raptor. Mm, that's pretty hot, uh, yeah. For, for obviously the Nissan yeah. audience. I yeah. like that a lot. Yeah, anyway, cool. good stuff, and I think kind good. of underscores what's nice about SEMA. Good. So besides SEMA, Dave, I guess the other big event that's happened the last few weeks was uh, the Tokyo Show. Yes, the uh, Tokyo Show, Kevin, as you know, our audience may or may not know, uh, is held every other year. And uh, by virtue of that, Japan obviously has a big automotive industry, and if you're doing this every other year, you can obviously plan accordingly to feature as much of that industry as possible. So Tokyo should be exciting. Quite frankly, in the last couple of runs, I think it has been underwhelmed. Not maybe disappointing, but uh, not living up to the expectations. Part of that was the post-economic downturn. Mm -hmm. Part of it is the fact that a lot of the American manufacturers weren't participating, mm -hmm. and it was left to the Japanese to kind of support it by themselves. Uh, so a lot of factors, but it seems as if for 2019, they seem to have rebounded. There was a lot of energy there, a lot of interesting things to look mm -hmm. at. Once again, neither you nor myself attended. I can speak to it from having been there in 07 and 09 on employee of Suzuki. Mm -hmm. And it seems as if Suzuki was to a certain extent taking center stage even though really? they're one of the smaller 
oh. of the uh, domestic Japanese manufacturers. What they take center stage with? They, they had half a dozen really interesting either concepts or production intros. Uh, the Jimny, which was introduced two years ago at this point, a redesigned Jimny, which we knew in the States as the Samurai, yeah, yeah. Uh, really getting a global buzz. And you wish to God Suzuki could figure out a That'd way to sell that thing here in the States. That's a, yeah, that yeah. would be super cool. I, I've got an idea, which is do what Mahindra, the Indian company, has done with their Rocksor. They're selling it as a off-road only vehicle through motorcycle dealers. Suzuki has a motorcycle dealer network. Uh, quite a good network. A good network, yeah, <laughs> yeah. for now. And uh, they could bring in the Jimny as a off-road specific oh, that's an vehicle. Awesome idea. Sell it for roughly twenty grand and have people lined up for the thing. Do they, do they, yeah. do they have your number, Dave? They do. You, you need they, to. Yeah, all they have to do is look in the personnel files. Yeah, the old personnel files. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. <laughs> I don't believe they were sealed when I left. But anyway, <laughs> beyond the Suzuki, and they had a concept, and I'm reading this because I have to read it. Suzuki's every go anywhere baby room is essentially a mini minivan <laughs> that has the unique characteristic whereby. For young families, they've got two diaper-changing tables <laughs> in back. And, and yeah. I'm laughing, but I'm on the cusp of being a grandfather for the second time. Oh, and two oh. diaper-changing tables might not be a bad thing. I mean, the Japanese in spades cover the lifestyle, adapting a vehicle for lifestyle needs to well, like given, nobody else. Given what rents are in Tokyo, I mean, you may have people living in this thing. Yeah, and so. they don't have as many babies there either right, so maybe right. they recognize how special it is right right boy well, it, uh, it it was unique if only for the name and the execution mm -hmm. subaru had a uh, concept which uh if i'm pronouncing this correctly the laborg five door mm -hmm. which we don't get in the u.s mm -hmm. but is what i think of as a legacy wagon or a legacy sized wagon spoke to the sheet metal that subaru might be getting on new intros going forward Oh. And I love Subaru like vehicles. Like Next Impreza or Next? Potentially, yeah, potentially. Uh -huh. Love Subarus, love all that they represent. Um, I love dogs, uh, and uh, I love the end of world hunger. So I love Subarus. Uh, it's real reasonable to say, though, that the focus really in the Subaru lineup as we speak isn't on the sheet metal. And this Laborde concept speaks to a little oh. more of a design orientation mm -hmm. for Subaru going forward. Okay. That's interesting. Good. Interesting. And finally, uh, and this might lead into a conversation of the EVs, Nissan, and it's Araya, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I saw that also. I noted that. They uh, bought out an EV for a display that speaks to a production version. And uh, again, as we get into EVs and that conversation, we could maybe explore that. Well, that was, I mean, at least one thing to mention, it seems to be it's crossover SUV size. It's not necessarily hatchback, you know, the car hatchback uh, basis, as some initial EVs from Japan's mm -hmm. side are. So, Including Nissan's you know, this, That is seems to be the next wave is something, electrification of the SUVs that are wildly popular. So, to be sure, they didn't ask us, Kevin, but why in bringing a second-gen LEAF to the U.S.? Why didn't that simply come over as a crossover? Well, I don't think they don't have the platform yet. That's what I mean. They just okay. and the, the car platforms, you know, might be more accessible, easier to develop, or easier to change over. You know, mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. less cost made to get that initial shot there. Yeah, it seems to me that only Tesla has succeeded in electrifying a sedan or a hatch and enjoying a real sales but success with it. 
when the hatch this crossover i think i read it would be maybe globally launched in 2021 so it's it right seems, around so it's that's what i mean it also seemed not concepty as it's a real thing and it's coming it'll be here in less than a year so it'll be here really soon. have they advertised a range no not that i saw but i mean the minimum seems to be these days there's some other electrification things like maybe we'll talk about that next year seem to be 200 kilometers plus you know so right, it's definitely right. High hundred, low two hundred miles mm-hmm. of range. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be that. The one thing they did advertise on it, I just think it's worth mentioning, is kind of their Pro Pilot 2.0 autonomous driving system stuff they have. So that was also of note because the Japanese, given their crowded city market, seem to be very quietly making a lot of autonomous vehicle okay. steps, okay. more so than others that are trying to say they have autonomous driving features. But I think the Japanese might, not sneakily, but quietly, all of a sudden attain a lot of autonomous driving stuff that you might not expect coming from them. Well, in the nanny aids, I was in a Versa this week, Nissan's Versa, $22,000 for the SR trim level. Uh And uh, frankly, enjoyable car to drive around in. Uh, But the nanny aids have trickled down to the point that this $22,000, you still need to steer. What do you mean nanny aid? Uh, The automatic braking, if... It oh, perceives oh, you okay. about to back mm-hmm, into something mm-hmm. or, or hit something head mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things, uh, which, frankly, I would much rather just shut up and drive. Mm-hmm. But that said, I understand that uh, among young drivers or distracted drivers, it has a value. Anyway, you're seeing that at a $22,000 price point. And when the kids you're talking about the diaper station for are growing, a lot of people are like, what has the most safety assist right. content? Right. I know some friends of family that that's the first thing they want sure. they, they want a new vehicle or a newly used vehicle that has those aids so yeah uh, i've got family members that uh, are you know one marriage removed but they traded in a relatively new highlander yeah just to benefit from those things toyota had added um, in a couple of model years yeah. and that's a lot of money to pay for those aids but if you keep if it keeps you out of someone's trunk, it's probably money. Toyota's done some of the best that Toyota safety sense. I really the way they've packaged that and named it and talk about it at shows and mm-hmm. uh, publicity wise or uh, communication wise has right. been really impressive. All right. Well, so we were speaking of the Araya, You called it. I called it Araya. Yeah. I, I frankly don't know. What uh, they concept. Call it. I mean, that's as an electrification of an SUV. There's also some other things that came up. The um, MX. 30 yeah, is from Mazda, right. which is interesting. So that's kind of their first big shot into electric world. Again, kind of a crossover, but maybe a little less of a traditional crossover. Got some suicide doors. The, the naming was interesting. I now, thought the, you might... The, the, the suicide MX. doors are custom? No, but... <laughs> is it like this, now up your own suicide? <laughs> it has suicide doors, which you don't see that much. I mean, I it see. reminded me, to be honest, of BMW with... Uh, with their electric vehicle, or, or the but, older, the RX-8. Yeah, the well, that's time. what what I read in the material right. is it's a it's a homage to RX kind of theme, not so much Miata MX. So with homage, are you trying to get a gig with PSA? Because <laughs> that's very nice. We have to use some more French words. <laughs> anyway, uh, I I wish Mazda <laughs> well with that. They uh, are doing a nice job with their crossover lineup, but as you say, this is virgin territory in the electrification of any of that. Yeah. So uh, I'm hoping it comes to the States, and I'm hoping it uh, finds a responsive well, market. There were a lot of cool things in the concept, too. One was about the, it has cork inside. I mean, again, that's a concept part, but it's an environmental 
element mm -hmm. to, to use. And I guess uh, Mazda was founded as a core company in 1920 or 1920. So it's an homage to that or a throwback to that. Okay. Um, and it also uh, seems to be um, a throwback to, like you brought up, the RX-8 with the doors. So it's, it's saying something, it's giving some sporty mm -hmm. connotation to the electric side, which is electric. We've talked about it in the first podcast, electric vehicles can do very easily because mm -hmm. of the power available and such. Well, it's also from a design standpoint, this MX-30, it, it doesn't follow on the heels of Ford's Escape. But I think increasingly we're going to see crossovers that truly are that slightly higher riding station wagon as opposed to what we perceive yeah. to be SUVs. Exactly. And the MX-30 looks like it's going to occupy that niche yep. with its electrification vis-a-vis a CX-3 or CX-5 or CX-9 yep. that have a typically higher ride height and boxier yep. proportions. Yep. So real interesting. Cool. Volvo is also doing something in that arena. Yeah, and they've got some interesting that. branding. The XC40 is their full electric SUV, but it's the XC40 SUV. Mm -hmm. um, it's the XC40 Recharge, mm -hmm. they're calling it. So that looks interesting, too. That, mm -hmm. I think, might make it to the States. Or yeah, I was going to say, would hit showrooms when? Do we have any idea? Uh, no, I don't. There's no pricing. Okay. I'm not sure. Okay. Showroom. And Time. for Nissan, we're thinking 2021 model year? Well, it says globally 2021. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a year or two after that for states. I mean, just I, I don't know where in their electrification right. plans. Obviously, Leaf is an important market for U.S. So right, right. Being in the U.S. So it could be. We'll see. We still get back to, to selling these. And once you've bought one, where do you get it charged? Well, let's talk about that infra those infrastructure needs for electric cars, Dave, because that's just, uh, I don't know any consumer that can understand that easily. There's so much that goes into getting an electric vehicle if you are a consumer and you want to get one. I, I would install a home charging unit, without okay. a doubt. That's okay, so that's that's several hundred dollars. But if you're, a renter, if you're a renter and don't have a home, in other words, you've got a public garage that doesn't offer you that capability, yeah. it's incumbent upon you to find it. And until I can charge my EV as easily as I can pump a tank of gas, it's my way of thinking there's going to be pushback with the whole concept. You just can't, you can't adopt it. You can't get it. I mean, people might have a place at work to charge, right. maybe, if they're there. But then once you're not at work for some day or for the weekend, then, then what? I, I had a short gig with uh, Yahoo in the D.C. area. Mm -hmm. And they offered employees, even those with short gigs, recharging. And it was as easy as filling your gas tank. Arguably easier. You just stick it in and you walk to your office. Uh, with the commercial charging applications, you're pulling out the credit card or you're pulling out your phone. It's just three or four steps before you can put the plug in the plug. So to my way of thinking, they need to get something that is completely intuitive even for old farts that are disinclined to learning. <laughs> right. And once they've done that, and I say old farts in part because the older demographic, they're set up for EVs. They don't have long commutes because they're typically retired. Uh, they like the idea of fixed costs, and an older EV is typically not going to represent reduced, the repair issue. Reduced fixed costs. Exa I mean, exactly. You can... So, plan that out for decades if you really are keeping a car for 20 years because you just replace the battery for a few several thousand dollars and 
And if the battery's gone, you, can be, you can be buried in the thing. Right. Assuming the burial of an EV meets EPA requirements. So they'll get it, but I don't think they have it yet. Yeah. yeah. I know like uh, Ford had a recent announcement oh, I don't know, a couple months ago about having the largest uh, um, charging network. But when I asked them about it, it's, it's, it's the largest network available. So they're using some of the points from Electrify America from Volkswagen and charge point points, just, you know, putting them all together, putting the different pieces together to say there's a large network. Mm -hmm. So it's not really theirs. And interesting with uh, Ford, too, because of the whole, you know, uh, what's going on on the truck side with electrification of the trucks, Rivian and Bollinger. Right. I mean, Rivian's got an investment from, and correct me if I'm wrong, from Ford, from Amazon, and from Cox Automotive. So the largest media for automotive, the, you know, arguably largest company in the world, the Amazon, they're, right. they're going to buy 100,000 electric vans for delivery, guaranteeing that production off the bat. And full disclosure, and, I'm a Washington or, Post subscriber. Jeff Bezos <laughs> owns the Washington Post, so I guess I should mention that. Well, and this is HQ2 here in the D.C. region, so, you know. That's right. You disclose that where we're from, so. Um, but it's just, they seem to be getting a lot of investment, um, and so there must be some structure that will come with that. You know, Amazon will have the structure needed for their delivery vehicle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's interesting they've gotten all that investment but like Bollinger doesn't seem to be getting the investment yeah and and, and they have SUVs as well and they're Detroit based truck yep yeah yeah so you'd think within that circle uh, they'd be gaining more attention somebody would be doing that to be on parity with what Amazon and Cox and those guys are doing Bollinger in its footprint doesn't seem to be nearly as sexy as the folks at Rivian are. There's hmm. there's not the design. It's the straight edge design aspect yeah, to it, yeah. which, if, if it were a Land Rover Defender, is extremely attractive. Uh, I just don't know that they've caught on or caught the public's imagination to hmm. the extent, and that's communication as yeah. much as it is yeah. design, as uh, well as Rivian or, yeah. or obviously Tesla before them. Yeah. They it's still just, have time. It's definitely that's yeah. what and somebody that wants a piece of what they can't get now with Rivian. So right, right, right. <laughs> they could do the same there. I mean, I can't imagine their the platforms are that different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. And, and with OEMs, obviously, the EVs proliferating across all platforms. When you look at the money that is made from trucks, uh, if and when they can get a range that's appropriate to the truck user specifically the commercial user, it stands to reason it would be a, a groundswell of interest. Well, if you heard anything, is that is Ford's investment in Rivian going to allow them to take the Rivian platform and put it into their trucks or that technology, or is it is Ford still got two different tracks going? We should have a Ford guest. Oh, that would be a good yeah, idea. Yeah, I think that would be a question to ask him or her. Would they answer? No. <laughs> <laughs> they can't talk about future product. Oh. Well, anyway, there's just a lot of truck activity going on, which if that's where the demand is and for the commercial uses of the truck side, that talks again about the electrification network that needs to be out there. And so something more needs to be done to make it easy to understand for those that are adopting an electric vehicle. And a big question mark with respect to all of this is, does the U.S. government continue to subsidize the purchase of EVs? Well, that's and then so that subsidization is also 
I've never seen a total cost of ownership for an electric car, uh-huh. for an electric vehicle. Because, you know, like we just said installation at, if you have the household that can do it, right. is, you know, approaching $1,000 or several hundred dollars. But then insurance is still more, but the gas is like one, the operating cost for the electricity versus gas is like one third the level. So right. Right. nobody's put it all together to say, oh, yes, this is cheaper over five years or this is more expensive over five and years. And insurance. I've never seen that. Is insurance more expensive by virtue of repairability or perceived? Well, it seems like it should be repairability would be a lot less, so it should be but less. But I think there's not a lot of people insuring yet. Yeah. So they say it's kind of a combo. So they don't really have a pool. Right. right. They don't have the history of the um, for the actuaries to right. plan right. out what the cost will be in the, yeah. the far future. It's like a new century. <laughs> or, or it's like episode You don't mean a Buick century, do you? No, I don't. Oh, okay. no. Not, <laughs> not now. No. Okay. Well, a lot to explain there. We have an expert on electrification, too, not just Ford. So. Well, there's a lot to talk about on that front, Dave. So, you know, we'll maybe can bring that up. We'll see you in a few weeks at the next uh, session. Thanks very much, and Kevin. In the meantime, shut up and drive. Shut up and drive. Oh.